This is Living Your Big Bold Life Podcast, and I am your host, Bet Lucas. I am a mom of six crazy kids. I work as a VP in a fast-paced industry, and I've been on a health journey. But what does living your big, bold life even mean? Living boldly is having the courage to finally listen and do what your heart has been trying to tell you all along. Maybe it's to take back your health, write the book, go for the job, run the race. And I'm here to help you listen to that voice and to remind you to be you boldly. The world needs you. Hello, welcome to Living Your Big Bold Life Podcast. I am your host, Bette Lucas. You know, it's interesting when we talk about grief and suffering Some of us avoid that topic, right? We don't want to hear about it. We only want to hear positive things. And yet the interesting part is that we will all have grief and suffering in our life. We all will. When I look to those that are the wisest people when it comes to grief and suffering, I notice three main things. Number one, they have let go of the perception that they can control their life enough, that they can have a perfect enough life that they can behave in a certain way, and it will prevent suffering and grief. They have let go of that. And to be honest, all of us need to, too. We are all going to have a loved one pass away, and it's going to hurt. We're going to have someone get sick, and we're going to think it's not fair. Your kids are going to have to also go through their own unique sufferings. And you, as a parent, cannot stop it. What can you do? You can help be there for when it happens, because it will. And maybe you can help give them a few tools for their journey. Number two, I notice they don't expect to understand everything about this suffering, this loss, this hurt. Unfortunately, we assume everything will be explained or understood on this earth. I don't believe that is the case. I believe There will be much we will not understand, even possibly until our dying day and beyond. And maybe that is where a little peace can come for you and your journey. To realize that no one completely understands hurt, grief, and loss. And number three, the people that I look up to the most when it comes to handling grief and suffering is that they realize they kind of have two options. These scars can become bitter and hardened and not do anything for anybody else. Others, I find, believe that their suffering actually might be able to help somebody else. You know, I think back to when my grandparents, they lost their 17-year-old son in a car wreck. Wasn't fair. No one should have to lose their child. But they had two choices. They could become bitter. They could throw anger at God, at the driver, the world, whomever it may be. But that was never, ever going to change David coming back. Or they could use this suffering for good in their example, in the way they loved those around them, even the person may be at fault. And my friends, that is where it's time for your garden to grow. In those same scars, you can plant some seeds in there and pray for a garden to grow. And maybe that garden helps you, your kids, and others on their unique suffering and grief journeys. 
not preventing it, but instead of a bare desert, they see the flowers that you planted on yours. Today, I can't wait for you to hear about Christine's brave journey and about all the flowers she is planting, even though it's really hard. She doesn't completely understand. And yet, our suffering, I believe, will be better for it. Now it's time to go plant our garden and listen to how Christine is planting hers. Here's Christine. I know I mentioned to many of you in the beginning of this interview and the welcome about truly how special today is going to be and unique, but also hard. And I think in many ways, and I, I hope that you walk with me on this journey, is that we realize that a lot of the hardest things in life are often some of the most beautiful too. And I am super honored that today's guest is willing to share her journey, her husband's journey, her family's journey with each one of us. And I cannot thank her enough because the topic of grief, many of the other topics that we're going to tackle today are things that are sometimes avoided. And yet, we all deal with them in our lives in different ways. So without further ado, I'm honored, so ever honored to welcome Christine to Living Your Big Bold Life podcast. And I just learned today that she's so close to me. She's here not that far. I mean, I can't throw a stone and hit her house, <laughs> but she's really close. So Christine, come to my little here. island. I know. I need to come to your <laughs> island. You know, you do like islands, Christine. I love them. So it's quite ironic. It's not a tropical, tropical one, but it'll do for now. Yes. Yes. So Christine, thanks for being here and, and really sharing a piece of your heart with all of us today. Yes, thank you. I know we've kind of been chatting for a while about doing this, and I am just a big believer in providential timing. So after finally nailing down a date and chatting about what we're going to chat about today, I'm really excited. I know sometimes when I'll schedule with somebody and it'll get canceled or rescheduled, someone will kind of freak out. They're like, oh no, or they'll apologize. And I say, you know what? I have learned that this just means it wasn't it wasn't the right time. And today is our time. So Christine, we are here to learn a little bit about your journey with your husband and through his illness and how you've handled the last year. And I know many of my guests follow you through social media or know you, but can you tell our listeners a little bit about you and also kind of why you're here today and, and what we are sharing about? Yes. Yeah, so my name is Christine. I have four children a uh, recent teenager, two boys, two girls. My youngest um, is going to be seven here this summer. I uh, am a recent widow. My husband passed away eight months ago from treatment complications of brain cancer. And he was diagnosed not even a year prior. So it was in some ways shocking, in some ways not just the quick Mm -hmm. um, journey of that whole brain cancer, um, walk. Most patients 
or people with brain cancer have a very short life expectancy. His particular tumor, however, was shown to respond more favorably to treatment. So we thought that we had a lot longer time. We were told about 10 years before his tumor would regrow. It was quite a large tumor. So it's kind of this ping pong back and forth with what to expect in this whole cancer journey. And as many people who have walked this journey know that it is so unpredictable. So here we are. Um, I'm just still home with my babies. I We've been homeschooling for about eight years now. So I feel so blessed to be able to continue to do that, not only through Michael's cancer journey, but afterwards and we uh, we love the Lord. He is just the center of our lives. And so to have this veil between earth and eternity lifted during his time on hospice and then now afterwards has been a very painful, beautiful gift. And so, yeah, there's just a lot wrapped up in, in all of it, in cancer, in his last weeks, in the time following him passing, in faith and grief and the spiritual life and the physical life. And that's just kind of where we're at. And Christine, before we dive into what I believe is is the the meat of this, this the really the heart of, of what we're here to talk about, how old are you? And how old was Mike when he was diagnosed? Just to give our, our listeners even right. more of a of a color here. So I am 37. I will be 38 in July. <clears throat> so I got to celebrate my birthday with him last year, just a month or yeah, a month before he passed away. Michael was 41 when he uh, passed away. So let's see, he was 40 when he was diagnosed. So young. And, yeah. and when you see friends of his, I, I saw I saw this through social media, how many people really loved Mike. When you have a friend or when you describe Mike, tell tell us a little bit about him. Oh goodness. Okay. Michael was I think the phrase to coin him was servant warrior. He was such a presence. He was so just genuine and authentic and kind and had such integrity. He had so many different life experiences. He played college football, won a national championship as a middle linebacker, coached college football. Then he went off to uh, seminary to discern uh, for a couple of years whether he was called to become a Catholic priest. And then after two years in seminary, he ended up leaving uh, just through his discernment process, realized that that was not the road that um, he felt peace continuing on. And so he left, he was supposed to be a PE teacher, believe it or not. He was a special ed PE major. So that long story short, I was up in, uh, Western Washington university and we needed a campus minister at our Catholic ministry. And so our pastor knew Michael very well and brought him up there. And that's how we met. But Michael continued, um, just through campus ministry. And then once I graduated, we started dating, and he transitioned to the business world. So then he became a stockbroker. And so through all these different experiences that he had, he just really remained the same person. He had, like I said, a lot of life experience and touched a lot of people's 
lives and hearts. So when he passed, it was quite a shock because Mike Moss was the uh, almost the untouchable. He was really someone who was always there for people. So when it was other people's turn to be there for him, it was kind of this, you know, many people just felt lost and, and confused. Okay, if this can happen to Michael, it can happen to any of us. So, yeah, no, he was a very great man. Great, so, great man. well, it just gives me goosebumps. And it's funny, I know people who know him and they say yeah, everywhere present. We it doesn't matter where we would go. We could be in a different country. <laughs> we <would> go, hey, <laughs> I know you. Yes. Yeah. Yes. yeah. He was, he was very that. well known. So I bet you know the moment, but when was the moment that you and Michael knew something wasn't right like with his health? So it was actually a week before his seizure. So he had a seizure at work on Friday, September 13th, Friday the 13th, fun day. Um, but it was a week prior. We were actually moving out of our house. We had sold what we thought was our dream house, you know, that whole, all the things wrapped up in that. And so he uh, he had just three weeks or a couple weeks before moved his brokerage business from one firm to another. He was with uh, a firm for about 13 years and just through a really long discernment process decided best for his clients that he moved to a different brokerage firm, which was quite a feat. Um, so he he moved firms two weeks before we noticed something was really wrong. And But around that same time, so he was in the process of moving his business, pulled the trigger. It was a very, very stressful, strenuous 70, 80-hour weeks for many, many weeks process. Um, we, I had done all the legwork on selling our house, so we were moving out. Uh, and we were also supposed to be adopting a baby just – Gosh, six weeks after that. So we had a lot going on, but we noticed that, okay, his right foot went numb and his right hand was starting to shake. He was a little bit nauseous. I thought that that nausea, it had to do with some work things. So I thought, okay, stress. He wasn't sleeping. He wasn't eating. And so actually that that night before, we – Every Thursday night was date night, so we were on mm-hmm. date night and just really noticing some things that were not right. And then the next morning, about an hour before a seizure, we were talking, and he goes, I, I'm i not well. I need." And I said, okay, we are calling the doctor. We're going to get you in, and that's that. And he was very much in agreement. And then I got a phone call an hour later from – one of his colleagues, and he said, oh, Mike had, Mike had a seizure. Where do you want, you know, the paramedics are here. What hospital do you want him brought to? So I uh, met Michael at the hospital, was 100% convinced that all of this was stress. Yes. 100%. I mean, just our lives were a mirror of <laughs> what, you know, I mean, we were just in a really stressful period. But when the they did the CT scan and the ER doctor came back and said, we found a really big mass on his brain. <clears throat> I was shocked. 
Um, I didn't freak out. I think there's a lot of grace in really big traumatic moments. It's probably shock. But then we had the MRI. And unfortunately, I mean, ER doctors are amazing. I've learned so much about the medical field. Um, I mean, I I actually Lyme disease before my husband was diagnosed. So I did a lot of research into the human body and holistic health and all on and on and on for years. But um, anyway, the ER doctor came back and said, oh, you have glioblastoma. And I said, well, what's that? Never heard of that word. Yeah. I didn't have glioblastoma. <laughs> yeah. But then I Google glioblastoma and the first thing that pops up is glioblastoma life expectancy, 12 to 18 months. And I dropped to the floor. Hmm. I said, my, and I looked over at him. I said, my, I just, I lost it. I said, 12 months? So that was the moment that our world was really turned upside down. Um, he ended up having a tumor called oligodendroglioma grade three, which is just a step down. Uh, he had a couple different characteristics of different cells. That's why the whole different name. But uh, he had a couple genetic characteristics, markers of his tumor that made his particular tumor more favorable to treatment. So... Treatment, radiation, chemo, all of these things are very uh, complicated and the decisions around them are very complicated and we had kind of ping pong back and forth. We can kind of get into that at some point. But anyway, he, we ended up transferring his care up to UW, UW Medical Center with a phenomenal neurosurgeon, great oncology team. He had his initial surgery that went really well. His tumor was the size of a softball. So in his left frontal lobe, which is shocking. Uh, Looking back, I can see things now over the past few years that we just attributed to stress. Things that I thought, you know, we would joke, we would get into an argument and then he'd kind of get this glassy eyed look and I, and I would say, I need to bring you for an MRI. Yeah. (laughs) But little did I, yeah, I really did. I really did need to bring him for an MRI. Yeah, you're just like, I, I'm you're like, not listening. <laughs> yeah, but it was like, you're not listening, but like, I could tell that he was trying, but there was oh. something, there was something blocking his ability to take in what I was saying at times. And I think he was really able just to com- compartmentalize life. And with the brain, the brain is so adaptable that, you know, being a stockbroker was is such a stressful job. So again, all of these things that were just really easy to mask. So- just to get this all straight, so you had he had recently changed stockbroker firms. You had sold your house. You were expecting to adopt a new baby. You are currently the mom of four, homeschooling. I think I missed maybe something there, but I think I could understand why you're like, oh, it's just stress. This is just, this is just, this is all stress. Yeah. And we knew that this was going to be a very stressful period. We walked into this number of months knowing that, okay, it's going to be rocky here with Michael, especially with work, because we had made the decision when he was going to move his business, that that was his, going to be his priority and focus for a good, anywhere from six months to a year, the prep Mm -hmm. work the transition, and then the number of months of getting settled because it's it's just a 
big, huge thing. And then with the baby that we were supposed to adopt, that was um, uh, coming in October, gearing up for that. Uh, actually, the weekend, the day after Michael's seizure, I was supposed to go out and buy a crib. Oh. So we, I mean, we didn't, we, I had a couple of baby things, but it was one of those things that I thought, okay, you know, once we get settled, then I'll start getting our baby things in order. And we were all so excited. It was a two-year journey, a year of really heavy discernment of whether I was ready to adopt a baby. My husband was adopted and it was something that he had always wanted to do. And I had always wanted to do, but we were having babies and just busy with life. And then it came the right time. And so I really spent a long time checking my heart to see that if, because adoption is so much, I mean, that's a whole other podcast. (laughs) Adoption is so much different than biological children. And so really getting to a place where I was at peace and ready. And so then we were, there was this beautiful expectant mother that chose us and was so excited, wanted this Catholic homeschooling, stay-at-home mom family, and just loved us so much. And we loved her And so, yeah, no, we did, um, to kind of bring it around full circle, we did have a lot of things going on and the light at the end of this tunnel was, okay, after my husband's business settles down, we're going to have so much more family time. This baby is going to be such a joy and so loved and we wanted more children. I had a lot of health issues that had prevented me from having more children as well, um, and we we sold our house. We were kind of on this one trajectory of life. And after a few years, realized, okay, this isn't working. We want something completely different than what we're doing. So we sold our house. And that was a pretty big discernment process. And said, okay, we're going to go in this little condo. And our kids are going to share a bedroom. And we are going to hunker down and get adopt this baby and move this business and figure out life and wait for the Lord to call us out into life part two. We were literally going into life part two. And so, yeah, a lot of his symptoms, um, again, just chalked up to stress. And so when he was diagnosed and ultimately just with a tumor and we were really just holding out hope that it was not cancerous. Um, I mean, it in fact was, but you know, just really, okay, I guess we really did enter life part two, but in a completely different way. I mean, before he was diagnosed, it really felt like we were walking into this great resurrection of our family. We had just been through so many struggles. My health, I had Lyme disease that went undiagnosed for a number of years. And so I went in remission a month before Michael was diagnosed with brain cancer. So I was finally feeling good. We were on this new, exciting journey and path and so much joy. We were finally coming out of this dark, these dark clouds and boom, here we are in the middle of brain cancer. And what really became our theme, I mean, really from the beginning, it's just so big, brain cancer, cancer, all of these things, all the unknowns are so big that we could do nothing but trust. And so our motto became Job 121, which is the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so we walked into this 
we walked into it with open arms. Okay, Lord, whatever you are going to do, we are open. And probably some of that was spoken with ignorance and naivety because, I mean, I guess looking back and seeing all that we had to walk, maybe I would have said something different. But but we have been through the fire. Uh, from day one, it, his whole cancer experience was just one complication after another. And And how did you guys... So you get the diagnosis, like you're falling to the ground once you realize like kind of this life expectancy potential and what was Mike's response or what was his reaction? He was, I have a picture of him not long after I was in pieces and he's sitting in the hospital bed laughing. (laughs) You're like, like, bye. Yeah, it's cool. Whatever. I mean, he was, that was one thing I loved about him when we, before we even started dating his, he was so even keel. Uh Nothing really, at least on the outside. I mean, as a spouse, I know him very intimately internally. So I know that, you know, sometimes we can put on a front, but he was very just, uh, what, you know, somewhat nonchalant about it. Maybe that was his own shock. I would probably throw some of that in there that he as a husband and a father facing cancer and brain cancer and the potential loss of his job as a sole provider and the lo- the potential loss of his own life. I know that that was a very scary thing for him. Very, very scary. But he was also just composed and he said, okay, we're going to get through it. It's going to be fine. And really my rock um, it was those two weeks we ended up, we thought initially, okay, oh, surgery tomorrow. And we ended up switching care. I think I mentioned this to UW Medical Center. So we had a couple of weeks. So, so we, once he had his uh, seizure, we were sent home the next day. We had uh, some appointments with the new doctors and his surgery was going to be almost two weeks after his seizure. And so that gave us some time. Uh, Man, those two weeks. Gosh, I feel like I'm just unpacking all of this. Well, it's, it's so, it's great though, because I think it's really, it's, it's thank you because I know it's, we're caring for this so ever gently because this is such a, I mean, just so much to. Well, it's been such a big year and we, we, in losing him, we've been grieving the loss of him. Mm-hmm. And so now actually walking into, so April 25th last year was kind of what I called the beginning of the end. He had a second round of chemo and it really, everything just went south from there. And walking into this time last year, I'm having to face all of these things that I couldn't face last year because I had to shove it all down uh-huh. and be caretaker and focus on my kids and my husband and every, you know, our well-being and our home and life. And there was so much grace in that. So much grace that people couldn't see that God provided for physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, but now I'm walking through it. So I I look I go back to those two those two beautiful weeks before his surgery. I mean, we would lay next to each other on the couch or in bed and I would sob. I would just hold his head in my hands and I would sob. 
Uh-huh. Because he was so beautiful and whole and I had no idea what I was walking into. And I think my world was so shattered that I lost any sort of um, notion that things were going to be okay. Uh-huh. Because the unexpected had already happened. I, I, I used to joke that, oh, we've been through everything as a family and as a couple that – the only thing we've never been through is cancer. Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, I, I would, I said that out loud a couple of years ago, two, three years ago, and here we are facing cancer. Uh-huh. And, and I didn't know. I mean, it was very real to me that I could lose him. Yes. And so, we walked into surgery. We had so many prayer. We did uh, so many virtual prayer rallies and so much support. And so we walked uh, surgery into surgery and. Um, end of September in 2019, his surgery went really well. His neurosurgeon came out and said, I removed the size of my fist. There's about 20% of his tumor left. There are quite a bit of risks uh, from brain cancer surgery, but he came out just as he went in. He was perfect. I walked into the ICU, saw him. He reached out to give me a big kiss. He had no neurological damage. He had no physical damage, nothing. He was perfect. Uh, and then three days later, like a couple days later. Um, so we were supposed to go, that was a Thursday. We we're supposed to go home that Sunday, but Saturday afternoon I noticed, uh, well, he had had a rash that morning. They gave him some Benadryl and that's kind of part of the story. But, um, anyway, nurse came in to do a neuro check and Michael got the date wrong. And the nurse and I looked at each other and said, Hmm, no, this He's, he hasn't missed one thing on a neuro check in three days. And so we kept an eye on about an hour later. I'm there with him, and he wanted the remote for the television. He couldn't see the word remote. And then within a half an hour, he couldn't see remote. He could. He started stuttering, and then he couldn't say my name when I asked him who I was. And so the nurse came back in, uh, and uh, Michael started to go downhill pretty quickly, Um this is one of those things now, I think, where I get so frustrated with COVID and patients not having an advocate. I mean, that all these different podcast topics. <laughs> um, yes. But uh, anyway, so just being there and being able to advocate for him, say, no, something's not right. And I thought, well, maybe it's just a Benadryl. Maybe it's sodium. I said, no, something is not right with my husband. I want I want a CAT scan. I want something now. So right. they showed some minor swelling. He ended up... Uh, within a couple of hours going completely unconscious. He ended up having what was called an uncle herniation. His uncus had herniated onto his brainstem and he was within, oh gosh, by the time they got him to the ICU and intubated him, um, Uh he was probably within an hour from dying. So they came to me with one of those stupid consent forms, if I ever see another consent form, and they said, we have to go back in. We have to remove the part of the brain that is on his brainstem. This is what we think is going on. We're not for sure. We can't guarantee this is going to work, uh, but we have to do it now. And I said, well, are you going to do any brain mapping to see if the initial surgery they do is called brain mapping. Um, they wake up the patient during surgery uh, to stimulate different parts of the brain to make sure that they are not removing areas such as speech, uh, that sort of thing. So it's quite amazing what they can do. But I said, are you going to do any brain mapping? Because you know, the temporal lobe uh, where this um, 
you know, the part that you're going to remove, uh, I did a little Google search and that's like executive function and all of these things. I said, what, how is he going to come out? And they said, well, we don't know. We can't, we don't have time. We have to go remove it or he's going to die. So I, I said, okay, I, so I'm, I said, I looked at the surgeon. I said, so I have to decide between losing my husband to death or losing my husband to brain damage. (laughs) So that's what it really felt like it came down to. So anyway, he was rushed off to surgery, came back. The surgeon came back and said, well, we don't know. This could happen again today. You might want to get, we might want to get pathology back to quote unquote, make some decisions. I think he was referring to taking him off life support if that ever came to it. So they did not expect him to wake up. Uh, with so many people in the ICU prayer rallies, he was actually um, extubated the next day. So he was awake. He didn't know who I was initially. And that I remember turning, um, one of my friends was there at the time. And I was, that was the heart out of anything in this entire journey. That moment was the hardest for me. Uh, he, because here's this man, my husband, this, the, father to my kids, this man I know so intimately, and he didn't know who I was. And I was exhausted. I hadn't slept in two days. And I said, this would have been easier if if he had died. Yeah. And I know those words were very much in shock. And I bring those words up because those those were real words and a real emotion. And I want to give weight to that because did I want my husband dead? No, of course not. But there are parts to this where we, where in cancer or in these very traumatic things where we lose bits and pieces of the people that we love and it's this grief and however the words come out, whether they were right or wrong, it was just this shock and this trauma that, you know, I know he was experiencing internally, who am I, where am I, what's going on? Uh, And then what I was experiencing, long story short, he ended up staying in the hospital for a couple of weeks with rehab, went through a lot of very dramatic brain changes, um, impulsivity, anger, aggression, and then really much by the grace of God settled into who he was personality wise. So back to his laid back kind of even keel. He was a lot funnier. The kids always joke, oh, dad's so much funnier now. Uh, <laughs> but he he had some neurological damage. He did have a short-term memory loss, um, word aphasia. He was not able to return back to work. And so that just kind of set us off on the next part of the whole thing, which we walked into radiation and chemo and those decisions and all the complications from that. So that's kind of the initial part of his journey and diagnosis. Hey friends, it's Beth. If you are enjoying today's podcast, I really hope you will join me every week for what I hope you find are inspiring interviews and bold content on topics like family and career and health. And can I also ask you a favor? Can you press that subscribe button and write a review if you like what you hear today? By doing those things, you are helping me get the word out, and I truly would be ever, ever so grateful. It also allows you to be the first to know when new content arrives. So please subscribe today. Now, let's get back to our guest. So 
When you got the diagnosis, how did you and Michael decide to tell the children? Because to me, that's almost just as scary. Like thinking, like, how would you? Right. How do you tell your children? Right. You know, and and then how do you? How do you tell your children, especially knowing that you don't know what the outcome's going right. to be? And I think that that's what they're looking for you to say. It's going to be okay, right? It's going to be okay. And you're like, well, what's okay? Right. So I'd, I'd be interested to hear how you and Michael decided to handle that. Yeah. So I think from the very beginning, it was two things. One, it was our decision to be honest with them, developmentally appropriate, of course. Our youngest was five at the time and our oldest was 11. Um <clears throat> And so, but we would also ask them and we'd ask them individually, what do you want to know? Uh Do you want to know everything? Do you want to know some things? Now, I made sure that I didn't, because I was kind of the main communicator of, okay, this is what's going on with dad. This is what's happening. Um, I, I was always careful not to overshare things that just to you know, share with them, but to give them enough to where they knew I wasn't hiding anything because kids are so perceptive. Uh And I was never going to tell them that it's all going to be okay. Because when they came in, when their dad was just out of that second surgery and we didn't know if he was going to wake up, they come into the ICU. I pulled them off to the side and I said, dad had to go in for emergency surgery He's in the ICU. We don't know if he's going to wake up. I mean, it really is just, there's no, I think as a parent, you know how to deliver things with love and care and concern. My my kind of motto was I can't minimize their sadness, but I can minimize their trauma. Right. And so I always tried to approach it that way, that if I'm honest if I allow them to feel what they want to feel whenever they want to feel, to ask whatever questions, that they would feel safe along this journey that I wasn't keeping things from them. And so when it came time to find out pathology, because we didn't get the final pathology for, well, we got the initial uh, three weeks after he um, had a seizure, I guess, or three weeks after, I can't remember. It took a while for, for pathology to come back to, for it to be confirmed cancerous. And so we <clears throat> got the news, spoke with our oncologist, called my parents to bring the kids up to the hospital that evening. And we, Michael and I gathered with them and we said, daddy has brain cancer. And the first thing out of Maximilian, he was uh, nine at the time, our oldest son, the first thing out of a mouth, his mouth was, so we can't adopt the baby. And that was a very big loss for them because they were so excited to have another sibling. And I mean, it was unrealistic to think that if this tumor wasn't cancerous that we could still, but but the expectant mother, we were all kind of holding out hope that, okay, if this isn't cancer and we don't have to walk down all this treatment, that there could still be hope. So that was the first thing out of his mouth. And... I think for children, one thing that is different than adults is kids don't have as much of ability to be scared about things that aren't happening. I don't know. Maybe that's just my kids. Maybe, I don't know. 
probably not all kids, but, but the kids, when I said, okay, daddy might not wake up or daddy might not make it, but to them, daddy was still here. So, um, so yeah, honesty and really asking them when, when it came to like life, you know, they'd want, they'd want to know, okay, how long is daddy going to live? How long is, you know, Maximilian would say things like, okay, when daddy's, um, you know, 70 and I, you know, and he's a grandpa and, and we were kind of walking through some things with Michael and his complications. I said, Hey buddy, do, do you, you know, can we talk about this? Do you want, do you want to know kind of a general, you know, I know. So just kind of keeping their expectations realistic while also not making them scared. So I guess that was the kids. It's hard. Yeah. Yeah, I, really hard, really hard. A lot of prayer, a lot of intention. I think that's what parenting is anyway, but I really just tried to um, not hide, just allow them to be a part of him. And there were times where, especially later on as Michael, because he, he, he was different. Uh-huh. He was different. He was very much the same, but he was also different. It was very scary for them. He to, looked too, right? He like, looked different. He had some facial palsy. One of his facial nerves was cut. So for a number of months, one of his sides of his face was um, somewhat paralyzed. And so he looked different. He sounded different. His personality was somewhat different. Um, he didn't go to work and come home. They're used to him. Okay, daddy, what suit are you wearing today? You know, so my right. daughter, my daughter thought, okay, daddy's not going to work. Oh my goodness, we're going to lose our house and we're going to be on the street. Like these are things that kids go through. Like, okay, my world is now rocked. Everything's falling apart, you know, but it's, it's like holding there like, okay, no, <laughs> we're not going to be on the street. Like just uh-huh. because daddy's not going to work. But at the same time, your world has changed. And so there were times that were awkward for the kids to be around him, especially later on when he was on hospice, my oldest daughter just didn't want to be around him. She says too hard. I don't want to see him this way. And I basically forced her. I said, you know what? You are going to regret this. I want you to just go lay in bed next to him and play Nintendo. Uh I want you to take pictures of the day and go show him. I want you to go read your book in bed next. And she she thanked me. She goes, mom, thank you so much for making me do that. Yeah. So it was following their lead, but also pushing them when I felt that they, they needed to be pushed. And so during this time and all of these things, you know, you and, and, Mike, describe your kind of faith as, as the, the foundation of your life. And were there ever times you were like, I'm so mad at God. Like, why us? Why this? Why, why now? You know, why? You know, it's kind of like I'm willing to have some sacrifices, but why this sacrifice? Why, you know, why does my husband have to die at 41? Do you, did you go through moments oh, of yes. that? Oh, yeah. Very much. Uh, I can even pinpoint the times. Goodness, I had a very, probably November of 2019. We just settled back home after being in the hospital right before radiation started. And then January of 2020. And then different, I mean, those were big ones, uh, right before he died. Um, And then a couple of times after he died. I mean, these were like big, um, 
And you probably still have moments. Oh, very much. The, these big moments I say were like, okay, I was brought to the precipice and I told God I am done. Like I am done with you. I'm done praying. I'm done being a Christian. I'm, I'm, I'm done. Um, but I, but I also know enough from my own spiritual life and from studying St. Ignatius discernment of spirits and from just reading, we're Catholic. So reading all of the saints and just these moments of great desolation that to choose God at the moment when I hate him the most, to still walk with him uh-huh. at the time that I want to turn away, at those moments, the most graces are received. So when I bring up November 2019 and January 2020, those were the most excruciating moments to choose God. And I did. And then I realized all these graces that came after that. And so for now, for all these other times that I get angry or want to get angry, I know that it is a normal human emotion uh-huh. that I ha- that I can't stuff down, that I have to face it. I get angry at my girl. I get angry at him. I go out in the garage. I say, why'd you leave me? Why yeah. do I have to go trim the bushes? <laughs> like, Why do I have to bring out the garbage? Why can't you run to Home Depot today? I mean, I get mad at him and that's so, and that's normal. I talk to so many widows who, yep, I get mad at my husband for leaving me. <laughs> I mean, it's, I know he didn't leave me, but sometimes it's like, okay, kind of feels like it. <laughs> so, right. Right. Anyway, but, but kind of on the spiritual side, walking through and still choosing the Lord at the moments I don't want to, he provides the grace and he rewards that so generously now with spiritual graces. And I know that in eternity, there will be uh, other rewards. And I know that the questions that I've asked, I mean, I know all the fruits that have come from Michael's passing things again, that I say, I don't believe that he had to die for these fruits to come. That when I read that somewhere that I don't believe that my spouse had to die for all of these XYZ things to happen good, whatever. I mean, there um that was such a huge weight off my own shoulders because um because the Lord can do anything anytime. But Michael did die. And I don't I have not the whole clear picture why. I don't know why. And and I know that a lot of people have been affected by his death and his journey. And I know a lot of people have drawn very close to the Lord because of what we have walked. And I've asked this very specific question. Why did my husband have to die for this to happen? Uh And the only answer I get is why did my son have to die for your, you know, for this to happen. So it's basically, I, it's, it's like in Job again, the, the answer to our suffering is not an answer. It's a question. It's understanding that I maybe as a human don't have the ability to understand suffering and death and all of these things as, you know, God keeps the veil here for our protection. But then on the other side, the Lord walked all of these same things and all of a lot of different points of our journey, it will be made known to me that at this this is the part of the way of the cross that I'm experiencing, whether it's the abandonment um, by from people that I have loved or whether it, um, you know, 
friends that have walked out of my life or whatever it may be, or maybe it is, uh, the persecution of my reputation being smeared and all of the gossip and lies, or maybe it's the, you know, my, my spouse has died and I'm relating to our blessed mother at the foot of the cross, seeing her son die and having to bury him. And, you know, so it's just all of these, we're shaving Michael and caretaking for him and and okay, this is Veronica wiping the face of Jesus, or maybe this is Mary taking care of Joseph when he died. So it's very, I don't know, I'm just kind of rambling now, but, um, but, but yeah. It's, but I think that you bring up a really good point, whether no matter like what faith background you're in, no matter what you're going through is that I think sometimes in life, we all want to have all the answers. And there are things that we may not have the answer to today and completely understand. And I think having peace with that is, to me, it sounds like whenever I hear from someone going through something of such significance like this, of such significant grief, there's there's not always a, this is, I totally understand everything. You know, it's like, I, I, you don't understand all the reasons that Michael had to die, you know, and, and when, right. why. Um, yeah. I understand very little of what we went through. Yes. I, I don't know. And if I, if I try to mull on that too much, um, I think it would break me. Yes. I, I think it would I think it would destroy me. I mean, I look back again on those two weeks before, kind of in between a seizure and a surgery. Mm-hmm. And I remember looking at Michael and I go back to that and mm-hmm. reliving that beautiful moment of looking at my husband not knowing what's to come and getting angry at why like why did it all why did that surgery have to go south? Why? Okay. He had the first surgery. Why, why couldn't he just had the first surgery and, you know, gone back to work? We would have had some normal life. Even if he only had a year, why did it have to be this year of one thing after another? Everything that they threw at him, his body rejected surgery, radiation, chemo almost killed him. A couple of times, it finally did him and he had a brain infection and then they give him antibiotics and then he had a life-threatening reaction to the antibiotics. And then they do a lumbar puncture and he, you know, it causes a mini stroke and it's like, okay, and then we're going to give him dexamethasone as a steroid and then he's going to get Cushing syndrome from the dexamethasone. And then it's like one thing, one thing after another, after another, after another. Uh And it was, yeah, I have so many questions. I just don't, I think that in my own spiritual journey, well before Michael was diagnosed, I have really latched on to this notion of abandonment to divine providence. There's actually a book of that title that has been kind of my mission statement, but it's just the sacrament of the present moment of, okay, the the greatest thing that we can do as Christians is to be abandoned to the will of God. 
not in this like passive way, but in a way to embrace it, especially when we don't understand it. And it's not this like weird sadistic thing like, okay, God's going to do or allow all these horrible things. It's just more of like realizing I don't understand life in this world and it's all backwards to me, but I am just going to try to move forward and live my state in life to the best of my ability and know that at some point that my obedience to what God has unfolded in my life will result in incredible fruit. I mean, it's, it's in, it's in the gospels. What, whatsoever you shall forego in this life, you know, fathers, houses, lands for my sake, you will receive a hundredfold fold both in this life and the next. And so not only for the love of God, but also for that promise of, okay, someday all of it will be revealed to me. And I kind of get bits and pieces now. The, the Lord will will kind of drop little nuggets of perhaps why this had to happen, but I don't think I don't think us as humans have the ability to understand it. And so even if God were to try to explain it all, I don't know. I just that's just kind of what I get. So I try not to think too much about why. I mean, I'm here. The why is not really going to change what I'm going through. I mean, okay, maybe it'll give me a little bit of consolation, but I'm still dealing with the loss of my husband. I'm still dealing with my kids losing their dad. I'm still dealing with being the only parent. I'm still dealing with all of these things. And so I guess the why is like, eh, I'll find out someday. (laughs) But I think that's good advice. So that leads really nicely into kind of prayer, you know, kind of a cynical person or or someone who's a skeptic or kids even like might say, well, why am I even, why am I even praying? Why am I, you told, you know, you say to pray, but it's not even making a difference. And I think that's always an interesting one, you know, especially when you're talking to different people. Did you ever, did you ever receive those comments or did any of your children ever say that? And if so, how did you respond? Yeah, I think I was the one who thought that because Mm -hmm. I was very much, okay, in bold faith, we will Mm -hmm. pray miraculous healing over my husband. And I believed, and I still believe 100% that God is so powerful that he could even raise my husband from the dead. I mean, nothing's beyond the power of God. And I believe that wholeheartedly. And so with that great faith, we prayed for his healing. Actually, in the in the beginning, I thought there is no way he's not going to be healed because there's no way that we are um, not going to be able to adopt this baby. Like I just was so convinced in the beginning that he's going to be healed. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't, I don't know. And then it didn't happen. And... I had to regroup. And I think with prayer, I think a couple different things with that to kind of answer your question. On one hand, it's there's the will of God and prayer is us entering into that will to discern what God's will. That's why we say we pray with like groanings of the, like sometimes we don't know what to pray for, but the spirit does. I can't remember the passage, but I really just tried to tune into, okay, Lord, what should I pray for? Okay, Holy Spirit, what should I be asking for? Uh, And trying to allow God to tell me what his will was to then therefore ask for it. Mm 
I know it's kind of like, well, that's kind of want, want, but I think what, what coupled with that, I've realized that our journey as Christians isn't so much, okay, yes, ask and you shall receive, but it's not like, okay, God's here. I'm here. I'm asking for these things. God does them. And that's my relationship with God. No, he, like the way is the cross. So Christ, you know, God longs for us to be molded into Christ and Christ's way was a way of suffering, death, the passion, the cross. And so instead of, yeah, I wanted my husband to be healed. Yes, I prayed for all these things that didn't happen in the way that I wanted them to happen. But I also know that uh, God's ways are not my ways. So in the past, I have prayed for things. I've asked for things, gotten them, and it ended up being (laughs) the most horrible thing for me. (laughs) So I think I realized fairly early on in this process, especially kind of with temporal things, like praying for like this to happen, and then it did, and then wait a minute, that wasn't really good. Uh, I've realized that what I want might not always be the best thing. Yes, I still want my husband here, and I do think that that would be the best thing. But but again, God's ways are not my ways. So for me, prayer is kind of more trying to enter into the life that God has ordained for me. And to now and maybe instead of asking for all these temporal things, to ask for the graces to be able to walk it. Because I know that the desires that I have were put there by God and those will be fulfilled someday. Maybe not in what I'm asking for, but in a different sense. So I think we can have one or the other. And then there's this book, Trustful Surrender to Divine Providence. I picked it up. I have it here. It's a little book when Michael was on hospice. And it's like in prayer, how do we always ensure we get what we want? Well, we ask God in great faith. God, I want this. I want the healing of my husband or I want this certain thing. But also give me the grace and the same happiness that if you have something different, I will love and accept it just the same. And God is so pleased with that prayer that often, you know, like he he's like, wait a minute, that's that's amazing. I mean, so it's kind of like this whole seek first the kingdom and all will be added. I've really just tried to learn to pray that way now that, okay, God, this is what I want. And I'm not going to be afraid to tell you and ask you. But also if that doesn't happen, please give me the joy and the grace and the peace to live as if that thing did happen. So I love that. I really, yeah, it's really really helpful and it's really like, okay, then I can just let it all go. Yes. Yeah. So through this process, you know, there's, there were a lot of people, you know, your friends, Michael's friends, family, and, you know, one of the biggest things people wonder about when they have someone going through something like this is what to do for them and how to help. And I'm sure you learned a lot through this process on what is helpful, what is not helpful. You know, like recently we, um, there's a, a little boy in our area and he's had some health problems and pretty significant ones. And I'm always like, gosh, what does this mom need? You know, or I had another friend whose husband was dying. Like, what do what do we do for them in those moments? Because it can be pretty hard to know. And you also feel like, but if you're asking them what they need, 
they don't need one more thing to answer to. So what right. is your advice to someone yeah, who says, it really is tricky. And I oh. would preface this by I believe that most people really do have the best of intentions. You know, we don't – I think we really don't know how to help people who are yeah. walking through difficult things, whether it be grief, whether it be loss, whether it be health issues or struggles. So I think the thing that was the most helpful – and I had a girlfriend say this to me, one of my very best friends. She goes, I'm just here to walk with you. I'm here to walk with you in your grief. If you need to talk, if you need to cry, if you need advice, if you need me to just come sit outside your door. And so I think what that did for me is it really lifted the pressure off that I didn't have to worry, am I going to do something wrong? Like, am I going to do something wrong? And then, oh, yeah. So someone to uh, – and and I know that sounds so general. Okay, walk with someone in their grief. What does that mean? I think it's um, – you know, I've had people just text me uh, and insert themselves into my life, people I never even expected. Mm-hmm. Uh, say, I love you. I'm here for you at 3 in the morning. If you need anything, I am here. I don't expect a response back. Um, I love that last line. I'm going to, I I don't expect a response back. I think what I sometimes see, Christine, like you said, with the best of intentions is, um, people are asking what you need, but then frustrated that they don't hear back or, and I'm kind of like, you know, yeah, yes. And, and, and I guess that's where I'm like, Hey, everyone, earth to everyone on this one. It, we should not be ever expecting a response back. And I love that your friend like ended her text with that line. Like, I yeah. don't expect a text back. There have been that. texts I've, I've received from people that have meant the world to me. And I never got the chance to respond back. And I feel horrible. But just the fact that they reached out and said, I love you. I th- you are so strong. I think encouraging words. We, 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 uh, don't realize the value of a blessing and encouraging word. Someone say, you are so strong. You are walking through this just with so much courage and faith. It's like, oh, wow, thank you. I needed that. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, you know, I would text. Sometimes it, it would take me a month to text somebody back, not because I was ignoring them. It's because maybe I was overwhelmed. Sometimes it's just nice to be in my bubble. Um, but yeah, people who've kind of inserted themselves not in a way that's like pressuring, but in a way that is just so loving. And yeah, and I know that it's really easy to feel helpless. So we want to do something concrete to take the burden off someone else to fix it. And we think that, okay, you know, I would, I would, I shouldered a lot. Like I shouldered a lot. And I have a hard time saying that because when I say that I shouldered a lot in this journey as caregiver, in dealing with some of my husband's business, um, you know, kind of wrapping up his uh, brokerage business and dealing with um, the kids. And yes, I, I had help. I had help. But when I when I say that like I dealt with a lot, sometimes that met, that's met with, well, why didn't you ask for help? Or why didn't you ask me for help? Or you have so many people that want to help. It's like, yes, I, I know that. And I had I had and still have the most amazing team of people, family, friends, people who are there at the drop of a hat. It doesn't need to be like 50 people, but I had like 
five, six, ten, what I don't even know the number, ten, I, let's just say ten, that I could call, drop of a hat, that would be there. And so, but I think we've lost the ability just to listen, just to let people vent. Mm-hmm. You know, there were times I would vent and then I would either be perceived as this really negative, complainy, or 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 worse, worse things that I won't get into. Um, but but just the ability to allow someone to vent to get something off for me to say this is so hard taking care of my husband is so hard but not to see it as a cry for help like i wasn't crying for help i just wanted to say it was hard well and i guess i, I did it and i yes. loved doing it and i would take care of him for 80 more years if i could it was amazing i didn't need, you know i thought about getting a nurse you know i think there's so many things that people see on the outside too and this kind of with with grief and judgment and projection and whatever that like people didn't know the grace that God was giving me and my family. God was giving me the grace to handle all of these things. I look back and say, how the heck did I do that? Yeah. Grace upon grace upon grace. God would, would open this door and make this phone call happen. And I used to be an ultra runner and a bodybuilder. And so, yes, I could lift, lift my husband out of bed. Like I have the in- physical endurance to be able to handle these things. People, things that people didn't know. So someone just to walk with us, um, th- that is just so, so powerful. And to insert themselves, yeah, without um, judgment or expectation. And I do have people that I do go to for advice, but it's so kind and loving. It's not like the first thing that comes up when I um, – you know, bent about something. So anyway. Yeah. And, you know, excuse my kind of crass response here, (laughs) but um, you kind of need someone who says, Christine, this really sucks. You know, like, this really sucks. I get it. It's like agreeing with you. Like, you don't need someone to say, here's how I'm going to fix you. This is what you need, Christine, or any projection. You just need to say, I'm here for you. This really sucks. I know I can't fix it. But or I even, love you. Yeah. And even worse that if you were to do X, Y, Z, then it would be better, different change. He would be healed. It's like, wait, wait, wait. Yeah. No, we can Because can't. that adds so – there's already so much uh, pressure. Walking through cancer decisions is so difficult. And Michael and I did it very privately very intimately, very much together. It was always his decision at the end of the day what treatments he wanted and what treatments he didn't. We had a plan moving forward of when things got to a certain point, we would stop treatment. And uh, I think when life starts spiraling out of control, you know, it, that, it's, it's just, it's a difficult thing to watch from the outside. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like being a parent. It's like you think, oh, when I'm a parent, I'm going to be this kind of mother. And then you have a baby and you realize, wait a minute, nope, I'm not that kind of mother. I'm actually this kind of mother. Right, right, totally. <laughs> and, then, and then you go through cancer and you think, okay, if we are going to face cancer, this is what we're going to do. Uh, or I've seen them do this and so I'm going to do that. Or I've seen them do this, so we won't do that. And then you actually walk it and you realize, oh, no, actually this is what we're going to do. Mm -hmm. and we were thrown a lot of things that I don't know. Um, yeah, it's just until you are in the situation, you don't know what you're going to do. 
and making decisions about things like, are we going to do radiation? Are we going to do chemo? Are we going to continue? You know, we got to a point where we just couldn't do anything. Like we decided to stop treatment, but there was actually nothing that we could do for him at the end. And that was very difficult for some people to wrap their minds around um, that there was nothing that we could do because we are always, we are conditioned that, okay, there's something I can do to fix it, to make it better. And that's not always the case. And so to just receive love and support and it means just, it just means a lot. Well, I think that just all of that is, is so important and so good for us all to hear, no matter how many times we've walked through it. Because what I hear through your journey is even everyday decisions you were having to make and the pressure of knowing if those were the right or wrong decisions. And I don't know if you listened to my, you know, if you've listened to any of Mary Lennonberg's, you know, interviews, but, you know, I was fortunate to oh, have her yeah. on the show and, you know, she shares openly that, you know, after consulting with the physicians, they chose a medication for her daughter that ended up causing her disability. Uh, and, yeah. and so what I hope we can all recognize out there is that when you're walking through something like this, there's, there's so much pressure, you know, and, and there may not be always a solution. There may not, there may not be. Yeah. I, I just say we do the best we can with what we have. Yes. Um, with the information we have, with the skills that we have, with the mental and physical capacity that we have. And we, uh, yeah, it's a very messy, it's a very messy journey. Totally. So I just really, I'm so honored that you would kind of share all about this with us so candidly. And, and I know it, it cannot be easy, um, but there's so many other things I want to talk about, whether it's hospice and even more about grief, but I know we have taken a lot of your time today. One, before we close, I know you, you experienced the hospice, um, having hospice for Michael at the end. If someone that hasn't ever experienced what hospice is, what is like one or two things that you want them to know about what hospice is really like instead of them just hearing from a friend or I think it's not even hearing from a friend. I think it's just this like, uh, I don't know, is it the elephant in the room? No one talks about it. So no one really knows. Well, we think hospice is kind of like for like old dying people. I don't know. I didn't really, I didn't, I didn't have experience with hospice until my husband was on hospice. It was, uh, hospice was recommended by one of his rehabilitation nurses to bring in some extra support. We had actually we couldn't do any further treatment. And so he had suffered a mini stroke from a uh, lumbar puncture that he had um, had. Anyway, what what hospice is, it, 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 it is such amazing support at a time when uh, life may or may not be failing. Uh, I think the one thing that I tried to make clear to people is that by – Michael going on hospice didn't mean that we were giving up on him. It just meant that we were 
eligible for an extra level of support in our home that we could take advantage of, whether Mm -hmm. that be extra resources such as a hospital bed, uh, bath aids, nurses to come in our home to whenever I wanted, whenever I texted her. (laughs) I mean, she came once or twice a week, but I could say, hey, could you pop on over? You know, I'm noticing this. Could you come help me? A comfort Mm -hmm. care um, to be able to have things at our disposal as as Michael was declining. And then there was a period where Michael was stable for about a month. And we thought, okay, you know, actually it looks like at some point hospice might not be needed. And so a patient can go on and off hospice. Hospice is not a death sentence, nor is it a death wish. It, what it hospice is, is it's this beautiful organization of these incredibly caring, loving people who will come and support you you know, in in such an incredible way. I mean, these people were angels. I don't use that word lightly. And so um, I know it was very shocking when people heard that Micah was on hospice. Um, to some, I mean, when you hear hospice, you think, oh, he's only 40. Wait, what? It, wait, or 41. What? It, hold on. What's going on here? But, um, but no, he was declining. They had given him a couple of weeks and then he was able to bounce back for about a month and then he ended up passing away about six weeks after, um, after he was on hospice. So I love asking kind of at the end of the interview what kind of your bold advice is, but I'd also love to hear what you think Michael's bold advice would be for, for us. What do you think it would be? Wow. Oh, Wow. Oh, what would Michael's bold advice be? And maybe it's his bold advice to your children. You know, what do you think? What do you hear him saying? I think I would hear him saying love well. Mm-hmm. Love. And that's what he did. I think just love people well. Mm-hmm. I think that would be his. That just kind of popped into my head. I, I love that. I really do. And couldn't we all? Yeah. And not just the people that are easy to love, not just the people that are in our family, but it sounds like to me, that's what Michael embodied. He loved, he loved well, and he loves well today. He loves you well. What is the best way if people want to continue hearing about your journey? Because you are a beautiful writer, communicator, and you have an eloquent way of, of sharing some some really, really hard yet beautiful things. Yeah, uh, Instagram right now is great. Hi, everyone. It's Bet. Really quick, since we recorded this episode, Christine has updated her Instagram profile. She was well known at her handle called The Future Is Family. She has updated that to now Love Christine Nicole with a K. So go find her on Instagram at Love Christine Nicole. Her website that she shares about is still the same and moving forward. Back to Christine. And I am very slowly because of all of my extra time, right? I'm in the process of just getting a website rolling. It I do have the uh, handle. It will be christinenicole.com, Christine with a K. So hopefully within the next couple of weeks, few weeks, that should be rolling. I just have 
couple last things to finish up with that. But that way I can just write and put it out there. I just like to write and connect with people and I've been able to connect with lots of people. Just, I mean, it's cathartic for me to write about all of this, but then it's also been so amazing to hear other people's journeys that are similar or different and to connect and to see, I mean, we're all, we're all connected. We all can influence each other with kind of how we are living and walking our own lives. Definitely. Well, thank you because I feel like in your way, you loved us well today by sharing your story. And I hope that maybe can in response to that, you know, share that, that advice from Michael. So thank you for being here today. I, there's so many things I still would love to talk (laughs) about someday. And I always tell, I always tell my guests, there is going to be a part two. So whether it's your health journey with Lyme disease, whether it's how you and the kids are doing, it's, kind of what's what's on the dream list going forward. I oh, want to talk yeah. all those things someday. Let's so it. let's do it. And I'm honored. I, I take this Thank and you. receive this so, so gratefully. Thank, Thank you, you. This was wonderful. Thank you for listening today. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to write a review and push that subscribe button. I also hope you will come hang out with me on Instagram, Facebook, and my new website, vetlucas.com. And remember, friends, be you boldly. The world needs you.